Hi everyone. Today, me and Hellevorn are going to be talking about one of the works that influenced her characters a lot. Specifically, it is Henrik Ibsen's Hedda Gabler, which is one of his most famous plays. It is. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk about my favorite play by Henrik Ibsen. Mm -hmm. So the first question we have here is Henrik Ibsen's Hedda Gabler, published in 1890, is considered to be one of the masterpieces of realist literature and drama in general. The title character, Hedda Gabler, is seen as a female Hamlet through the force and depth of the character. Can you begin by summarizing the plot? Hedda Gabler is a woman of high status and daughter of General Gabler, and she has just returned from her honeymoon with Jürgen Tessmann, or George Tessmann who is a middle-class uh, academic historian. Desmond is a naive and kind-hearted man who loves Hedda and he would do anything for her. And he is grateful to have married a beautiful and dignified woman above his status. But Hedda feels indifferent to him and bored with the life he can offer her. And she is constantly looking for distractions. Desmond's rival comes to visit. He is Eilert Löwborg, who is a brilliant scientist and a recovering alcoholic who used to court Hedda when she was unmarried. So Eilert Löwborg is going to publish a visionary research book and Hedda persuades him to go to a bachelor party, even though she knows he would relapse into his old vices, which is alcohol and prostitutes. Eilert gets drunk and loses his manuscript, which comes into Hedda's possession. When he comes to her to complain, stating that he would commit suicide if the manuscript isn't found, Hedda, instead of telling him that she has the manuscript and then that he can uh, relax, she encourages him to kill himself and gives him her pistol, and then she burns the manuscript. Eilert dies by the gun, but Hedda's husband and Eilert's mistress start to work on his book, hoping to rewrite it because it was considered a great masterpiece. So while um, her husband and uh, Eilert's mistress are writing together, Hedda shoots herself with her father's pistols. Wow, that is a very dramatic story. And it, I think it shows that Hedda Gabler has a lot of issues herself. Oh, definitely. It is a fantastic psychological study. And this is why this is my favorite play by Ibsen. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the second question is, what are the themes of the play? I think the most important theme is power and influence, because every character in this play seeks power in one way or another. Uh, George Tessman wants to have social position and to become a professor, a medievalist. Uh, Lovborg is a visionary writer, and he wants to achieve immortality through his writings. Judge Brack, who is a, a secondary character, he wants power over Hedda because he wants to know her secrets and ends up blackmailing her with them, uh, hoping to have a, a, perhaps a sexual relationship with her. And Hedda, most of all, she wants power because uh, she longs to control everyone around her. This is actually her purpose in life. Um, sexuality and marriage are two other themes represented by George Tessman, marriage, and Adolf Löwborg, the sexuality part. Uh, 
and also society versus individual because um, Hida's flaw is her longing for chaos and transgression, which is censored by an ingrained fear of public opinion, which she tries to overcome, but she cannot. So she believes in uh, uh, the importance of the individual over society in a way, but because she's very individualistic, but uh, it is uh, a public opinion that she, uh, that is her greatest fear. Mm -hmm. I see. So what's Hedda Gabler like as a person? How would you summarize her character traits? I think the title summarizes her really well because uh, in the play she is referred to as Hedda Gabler, even though uh, she is now called Hedda Thesman after she got married. And this is suggestive of the fact that she is, as Ibsen himself uh, put it, she is her father's daughter more than her husband's wife. She used to ride with her father and shoot guns with him, um, and uh, but he died and uh, she had to get married. She is still a very independent and intimidating woman. She still shoots her guns in the backyard with uh, no regard to gun safety, I must say. <laughs> constantly uh, seeking thrills. Uh, she's very bored with her life, so she is uh, a thrill seeker, uh, no matter what that means, if that means shooting guns or um, um, manipulating people, because everything is a power play for her. She wants, as she says in the play, the power to shape human destiny. And what is very interesting is that uh, in her uh, attempt to control everyone around her, she often do does very gratuitous, uh, mean little things. So uh, she does terrible things such as uh, um, harassing um, Eilat Lovborg's mistress, Thea, who used to be uh, her high school friend, uh, her school friend. Uh, but um, she also uh, encourages Eilat Lovborg to kill himself. She almost commits murder in this sense. But she also does mean things to every other character around her because she simply wants to create chaos. And this is why she's truly a fascinating and unique character. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I can see some of the inspiration that you had for some of your characters, especially Reinvig, who is also, you know, a well-to-do woman who has to get married to someone. And I think she's also afraid of boredom, isn't she? Yes, and very much afraid of scandal. And as we will discuss more about the relationship between Hedda and Eilert Löfborg, we're going to see some similarities between the relationship uh, of Ranveig with Oswald. So um, her desire, Ranveig's desire to uh, control people around her because she's afraid of losing control. So she doesn't do it gratuitously like Hedda does, but she is afraid of losing control herself and of being uh, um, submissive to other people. So um, uh, this and the fear of scandal, these are two things that Ranveig and Hedda have in common. But in uh, Hedda's desire to manipulate people, sometimes only for the sole purpose of creating chaos, uh, she's a lot like Valdis. Mm -hmm. I agree, yes. 
So compared to other female characters of Ibsen's, like we've talked about, for example, Elida from Lady from the Sea, and we haven't talked about her yet, but we will, Nora from A Doll's House, how is Hedda like? From what you've told me, it seems like she is also stifled in her life and she feels limited by her position, you know, especially since her father died. So she has no choice but to get married. So how is she like compared to these other characters? Would you say she's more heartless in a way? Because it seems in a way she's a lot more psychopathic in a way than Alita, at least. I don't know yet about Nora, but definitely more less indifferent than Alita. Alita was more of an indifferent, apathetic person who liked to daydream. And then I guess in a way she kind of gets what she wants at the end by choosing her husband. But I don't think Hedda Gabler will ever come to the conclusion. We already know the ending that she chooses her husband over anyone else or even anyone really, not even an idea like the sailor for in Alita's story. Like she doesn't care about these things. That is very true. And yes, psychopathic, I think it is a very uh, good way to describe her. Hedda is very selfish. She was called morbidly selfish by the critics to the verge of pathology. Uh, well, both Nora and Elida have a dose of selfishness, I think, but it's rather a desire for independence and for self-actualization and also the need to grow rather than to constantly be a support for other people. So they uh, reach a moment in their lives when they want to put themselves first. Um, but Heda, uh, well, uh, let's give an example, a very telling scene that the play begins with and uh, which is a really great way to, to set the scene for what kind of a person she is. Um, an old lady who is her husband's aunt, Aunt Julia, comes and uh, uh, she is uh, really anxious and happy to meet Hedda Gabler and she has bought herself new clothes and uh, a nice and expensive new hat and and because she doesn't want uh, Heda to be ashamed of her old aunt. And um, she puts her hat on a chair. And when Heda comes in, the first thing she says, she, she says that something along the lines of, what is it with that horrible hat? Does that belong to the servant? Who put it there? And then, of course, the, the old lady feels ashamed and uh, she realizes that she'll never be able to, to satisfy Heda and to be at her level. And then Heda admits uh, to her friend and confident Judge Bragg that she did it on purpose. She really wanted to humiliate the old lady just because she wanted to amuse herself. So mm -hmm. none of the other characters really uh, do this. She, she takes selfishness to a whole different level, that of pathology even. Mm -hmm, definitely. So uh, she cares for no one but herself and people are just a distraction to her. And the only times that she compromises anything is only for the sake of appearance. Because like I said, her biggest fear is that of scandal, but she never compromises for the sake of others. Mm hmm. Do you think Ryan Vig is a little less selfish than she is? Oh, yeah, much selfish, most selfish. And even Valdis, because Valdis really holds her family in high regard. And her husband and son mean a lot to her, even though sometimes she doesn't know how to express it towards her son, Ingvar. But she really cares about them deeply. She may be selfish and manipulative with 
other people and uh, not care about harming other people. But with her family, she isn't really like this. Uh, but Hedda, on the other hand, she really doesn't care about anyone. Uh, she also uh, loathes the idea of becoming a mother. Uh, it is suggested in the play that she is pregnant and she really hates this because she she is afraid that this is going to um, to transform her into someone who is very conventional and very tied to her home and tied to the boredom that she feels right now forever. Mm -hmm. I think that's very reasonable for her to fear that. But I mean, she takes it to a new extreme, really. Exactly, exactly. And this is one of the reasons why she commits suicide in the end, because she realizes that well, we will talk about it in uh, more detail later on. But she realizes that uh, her life will be nothing than her being, uh, you know, a wife and a mother in a boring town and with nothing else to do. And she finds that too terrible to bear. Mm hmm. Whereas so Valdez if, oh, wanted uh, uh, a child a lot. So in this respect, she is more uh, giving and more caring, at least to some very few people than Hedda is, who truly doesn't care about anyone but herself. That makes sense, right? If Hedda is so morbidly selfish, as she's called by the critics, what are relationships to her? How does she relate to her husband, um, Jürgen Tesman, and to Eiler Loveberg? Does she love anyone? Definitely not. I don't think she can love anyone. Um, well, I think she did love her father, but I don't. But I think it was based on uh, respect and not emotion and dedication. So I guess, I guess we could say that she loved him. But now he is gone, and uh, she has no friends, nor does she wish to have any. Uh, she had. Uh, uh, well, I, I wouldn't say that they were school friends, but uh, uh, Thea, who is now Alert Lovberg's mistress, and uh, actually she, the, Thea says that she was terrified by Hedda during school because uh, she was bullying her whenever she saw her. Um, Thea had this beautiful hair and uh, Hedda would grab her hair and threaten to burn it down because Hedda herself, it is emphasized in the play, she doesn't, uh, she doesn't have a, a, a nice and thick hair. So she was always jealous of Thea's. So uh, uh, now Hedda, because she wants to uh, learn secrets from Thea, she keeps saying, oh, we, we are such good friends. We used to be friends in school and now we're going to reconnect. But in truth, the woman was terrified by Hedda and still mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. So um, I, about her husband, I have here some uh, quotes. She talks to Eilat Lovborg and Lovborg says, I understand it is an offense against Georg Tesman, whom you love, because um, they, they are talking about renewing their courtship, their relationship. And she says that she doesn't want to renew anything with him because now uh, she's married. So he says, so because it is an offense against George Tesman, whom you love. Heda, love, what an idea, glances to him and smiles. Loveborg, you don't love him then. Heda, but I don't, but I won't hear of any sort of unfaithfulness. 
So um, she doesn't want to cheat on him, but she admits it freely that she doesn't love him at all. She feels nothing. Uh, but the man she could have loved is Eilert Löfborg because um, well, he has nothing of Tisman's respectability and naivety, uh, but he has genius and passion and boldness. So in a way, he is more similar to Hedda because he doesn't strive to... Um, uh, to uh, um, submit to uh, society's uh, pressures and expectations, but at the same time, he has the courage and the boldness with he which Heda doesn't, because Heda, even though she hates it, she does submit to these uh, <laughs> pressures because she wants to appear as proper as possible, even though inside she is seething, you know, so she admires Alet Lovebox's courage. Um, and um, well, the, the moment when they meet and remain alone in the room is a very erotic one, although absolutely nothing happens. So her husband is in the other room, so Heda pretends to show Lovborg pictures from their honeymoon. So um, um, Lovborg, I'm quoting again, Lovborg, who has never taken his eyes off her, says softly and slowly, Heda Gabler, Heda, glancing hastily at him, shh. Lovborg repeats softly, Hedda Gabler, Hedda, that was my name in the old days when we two knew each other, Lovborg, and I must teach myself never to say Hedda Gabler again, never as long as I live. Was there no love in your friendship for me either, not a spark, not a tinge of love in it, Hedda? I wonder if there was. To me it seems as though we were two good comrades, Two thoroughly intimate friends, smilingly. You especially were frankness itself. Lovebog, it was you that made me so, Hedda. As I look back upon it all, I think there was really something beautiful, something fascinating, something daring in that secret intimacy, that comradeship with which no living creature so much as dreamed of. Lovebog, yes, yes, Hedda, was there not? When I used to come to your father's in the afternoon and the general sat over there at the window reading his papers with his back towards us and we too were on the sofa, always with the same illustrated paper before us. Lover, yes, Hedda. And when I made my confessions to you, told you about myself, things that at the time no one else knew, there I would sit and tell you of my escapades, my days and nights of devilment. Oh, Hedda, what was the power in you that forced me to confess these things? Was there not love at the bottom of our friendship? On your side, did you not feel as though you might purge my stains away if I made you my confessor? So he implies that uh, you know he was uh, he was living this this wild life with a lot of sexual escapades, and Hedda was always uh, uh, goading him to tell her more and more because she was very interested in the topic. But um, he believes that she was trying to save him to uh, to cure him of his uh, flaws. But at the, but in fact, she really did not. What she wanted to do was to uh, um, to look into um, to find out more about uh, a world that she's supposed to know nothing about. And this is what she says. She says, "No, not quite. Do you think it quite incomprehensible that a young girl, when it can be done, 
without anyone knowing should be glad to have a peep into a world which she is forbidden to know nothing about, a world of men, a world of sensuality and debauchery and passion. So she's living through him. She doesn't want to be with him. She would like to be him and to enjoy the same freedom that he enjoys. So there is really no love between them. He is, of course, uh, he, he cannot comprehend her at all in this respect. And he imagines that uh, she is this, um, that she was the, the kind of woman who wanted to save him, like Thea does to make him a better person but in fact she was uh, uh trying to influence him to do worse and worse things only so that she could live them through him so she is manipulating him all the way she doesn't love him she doesn't want the best for him mm -hmm. yeah she sees everyone as a means to an end to, for her own entertainment Exactly, exactly. So it is for her own entertainment. And um, I, I really, really love how unique this character is. And this is why it's my favorite play. And also here in this um, uh, little line where she talks about how she wanted to catch a glimpse of a world that a young girl is supposed to not know nothing about, I think that Ibsen shows tremendous insight into the female psyche. Because we, we have nowadays this trope in fiction of the loyal woman who wants to save her errant man through love but then and and it, there was this trope at the time as well but Ibsen really turns it on his head in 1890 because uh um you know as in in fiction women in front of a womanizer can be of two kinds usually we have the loose woman who gives into his charm um, and then we have the woman who is too virtuous to be interested in sensuality and she breaks away from him. Or we have the one who accepts to be with him because she loves him and wants to change him and to bring him to the right path. But Hedda is none of these stereotypes. She's curious, she's fascinated by the forbidden and by the scandalous and by freedom and sensuality. But she doesn't, this doesn't really mean that she wants to do those things herself. Maybe she would in a different world where the um, uh, pressures wouldn't be um, like this upon a woman. Um, and this definitely doesn't mean that she wants to be with that man <laughs> because she isn't in love with him, but with what he represents. Uh, she is idealistic in a sense, but she doesn't idealize Leverborg, so she doesn't want to be with him. I think this makes her such a realistic and relatable woman in spite of uh, in spite of the farce where she is a villain. But in this respect, she, she really is relatable. And I'm sure that a lot of uh, people find, a lot of women find themselves, themselves in Heda in this respect. Mm hmm I agree. And Ranveig certainly does, because this is what I wanted to say about her relationship with Oswald. Uh, they, they really have this kind of relationship. Um, Oswald thinks that she is in love with him, but that she is too shy to, um, or, or too hesitant to start a sexual relationship. But the truth is that Ranveig doesn't 
actually love him. She's attracted to him sexually, but it's more like what he can give her in, in a sexual way, but she doesn't want to be with him. She definitely doesn't want to marry him. And she's not being coy. She actually doesn't want to be in a relationship with him. Just like Heda, when uh, uh, Loveborg asked her to marry him, she breaks it off completely because he wanted to, to bring their relationship into the real and the mundane, whereas she enjoyed all the, the secrecy and the thrill of it. That makes sense. Does, does Hedda Gabler feel sexually attracted to Eilert or not really? Unlike Reinweg. I think she does, but she doesn't want to put it into practice. But I'm sure she finds him um, attractive, yes. Yes, <laughs> definitely much more than the other men in her life. And not her husband and uh, not Judge Brack. Uh, but yes, Eilert, yes, but not enough to make her want to be with him. Because of course she could have been with him when she was unmarried, right? But she refuses him even then. Mm -hmm. Hedda Gabler often complains about boredom. How do you explain this boredom? I think that Hedda is characterized by nihilism uh, in the form of this all-encompassing uh, boredom as a sort of an existential boredom, an ennui. Right, and um, the main source of boredom is domestic life. Her roles of wife and future mother simply do not suit her. And she lacks both the skill, uh, because she is uh, definitely not an emotional and caring person, and she also likes the desire for them. So um, I, have, um, I have a quote here which, where she talks about boredom and about uh, married life and how she views relationship in general. So when Judge Brack comes to visit, they talk about her honeymoon. He's a friend of the family. I mean, he, he pretends to be a, fr a friend of George Tisman, but he actually comes for Heda and he looks for times to arrive at their house when George is not at home so that he can be alone with Heda. And she really enjoys talking to him uh, because they always uh, tease each other, but she doesn't like him in any other way, just as entertainment. Okay, so she says, you see, Tesman thinks nothing is so delightful as grubbing in libraries and making copies of old parchments or whatever you call them. Oh, my dear Mr. Brack, how mortally bored I have been. You can surely understand it. To go for six whole months without meeting a soul that knew anything of our circle or could talk about the things we were interested in. And then what I found most intolerable of all was being everlastingly in the company of one and the same person. So she really dislikes married life. And uh, she wanted to be, um, um, she made him promise before they got married that uh, he would uh, uh, put his, uh, buy her a new and large house and put it at her disposal so that she could host parties because what she loves in life is having conversation and uh, uh, witty conversation with other people. So uh, when she realizes that uh, George Desmond is actually overwhelmed financially and he cannot really provide all that, She's very, very disappointed and starts to believe that maybe she made a mistake in marrying him. Uh, she says to Judge Bragg that she married him because, I quote, I had positively danced myself tired and I wasn't 
getting any younger. So she chose this man because uh, he could offer her security and uh, because of his correctness and respectability. But even though he is respectable to other people, she doesn't respect him at all because he is naive and he is tame and he is boring. And she actually uh, deeply dislikes all of these things. So she is very... Um, almost cruel towards him but he doesn't realize it because he's so naive mm -hmm. right i think this is actually very different from ryan vig and asphalt because i don't think asphalt yeah. is naive and i don't think ryan vig perceives him as such yeah definitely you're not uh, Aiden isn't naive either so she doesn't have the kind of relationship that um that Hida does so maybe she would have been more selfish if she was in that kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. Beauty is something that Hedda talks about repeatedly. What is beauty for her? Uh, well, Hedda doesn't have any intellectual or artistic pursuits, not in, in the strict sense. Uh, she is always longing for beauty. And to her, this means honor, passion, and freedom. And uh, there is a really beautiful symbol of it in the play, which is the vine leaves, um, as, an, uh, as a reference to uh, Dionysus. And uh, there is this repeated vision that she has of a uh, of Eilert Loveborg as Dionysus. And he is brilliant and bold and intoxicated and passionate. This is how she imagines him uh, when she talks about him. So when she hears that Eilert will come to visit them, she says, I quote, Eilert Loveborg will be, will be here with vine leaves in his hair. Nobody understands what she means. So later on, her husband tells her that Eilert uh, got drunk and went to a brothel, which, of course, he uh, he's really ashamed that he has to tell her this because he thinks it's, it's a terrible thing. And um, then her husband says, I quote, and then how pitiful to think that he, with all of his gifts, should be irreclaimable after all. Hedda. I suppose you mean that he has more courage than the rest. <laughs> this man. No, not at all. I mean that he is incapable of taking his pleasure in moderation. Hedda. And what came of it all in the end? Tesman. Well, to tell the truth, I think it might be best described as an orgy, Hedda. Hedda. And did he have vine leaves in his hair? So she sees him uh, with this image. She sees him as a as a bold person who doesn't uh, believe and and who, who who throws the finger to society and what society thinks about propriety. Mm -hmm. So this is what beauty actually means to her. So yeah, she she doesn't really create um, art or um, doesn't have a lot of intellectual pursuits, but she is interested in uh, human psychology and in conversation and uh, in uh, uh, shaping human destiny, she says, and this is why she wants to control people. So I think this is what this, uh, what beauty means to her. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting and very unique. I mean, you would not think that you know, I was expecting something like, you know, she thinks about her own looks, but she's not thinking about that. She's thinking about how, like, you know, power and I guess, you know, how people are characterized. Would you say yeah. she's a narcissist? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because 
Um, well, th there was a lot of talk about her in terms of uh, pathology, if she was uh, meant to be portrayed as uh, uh, someone with, with some kind of mental illness, I would say, or for a personality disorder. Uh, yeah, I would definitely see her as a narcissist. Um, this, uh, uh, the selfishness, the, the lack of emotion towards other people, the manipulation, um, this, this desire to control other people, um, this really points to narcissism at a time when people didn't know what narcissism was. <laughs> so I think that this is a really brilliant portrayal of a narcissist character in 1890. Um, and uh, she is very skilled with people because uh, her skills are of a social nature, but in a negative way, right? Because she is great at manipulating them. And uh, uh, she, she challenges herself constantly uh, with uh, word plays and flirting and uh, um, manipulation because this is what truly gives her satisfaction in life. She, mm -hmm. she makes a, a challenge of manipulating everyone around her. Interesting. So I think that this is, of course, where Hida stops being relatable because it turns into pathology at one point and it's quite clear. So, and the things she does is, are quite uh, extreme, uh, especially in this frame of the... Uh, a one-room bourgeois psychological drama. So when she uh, shoots her guns and makes uh, and, and burns Alex's ma manuscript and uh, um, tells him to kill himself and even oh gives him the guns. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> this is this is not something that one would expect, perhaps, and something that only Heda could do. <laughs> It is. It's it's very extreme, but it shows that, you know, she's gone so far. And I really think that some of her isolation and boredom have really pushed her over the edge. Like she's almost not seeing people as people anymore. Just like it's almost like she's living in a thought experiment. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that is really well put. Well, she does have a reason why she pushes Ayla to self-destruction because um, uh, he's basically competing with her husband for a position, for an academic position. So uh, I guess we could say that she's doing it for her husband. So she is offing his rival, so to speak. <laughs> but of course, she's doing it for herself because if her husband doesn't get the position, he will not have the money to uh, keep an open house, as she says, and host parties parties all the time for her. So she is basically doing it for herself. And also she is doing it, and this is really interesting, because she wants to prove herself that she still has power over Eilat Löwberg like she did when they were young, because now he has a mistress. And I mean, he he's not married, but um, the, the woman is married. So uh, this is why their relationship is... Uh, um, sort of a secret. Well, she has run away from her husband uh, to be with him, but um, this is why I called her his mistress. So um, he keeps saying that, not that he loves Dea, his mistress, but uh, that she helped him become a better person. And uh, when uh, Heda offers him a drink, uh, Thea 
tells him not to drink and then he doesn't drink. So this this was a very uh, outstanding scene where there is this power play between the two women. One of them is asking him not to drink and then Heda is asking him to drink. So she starts um, uh, daring him. She starts saying, well, if you don't drink, people are going to think that you are not self-confident enough, that you do not have any self-control. And she manipulates him in such a way that he eventually starts drinking. And she tells him to go to the party, knowing that he will get really drunk and that he will go to a brothel and do all the things that he he wanted to do. And of course, Thea is so hurt that he could do all those things. But then Heda is really satisfied because she knows that he has abstained for years and years. And now when he came back to her, he relapsed. And it was all due to her and to Heda. This is fantastic satisfaction. And of course, the, the, the coronation of her satisfaction is when she convinces him to actually end his life. So, right. yeah, <laughs> definitely a narcissist of the worst kinds. Definitely much more so than Reinweg. I don't think Reinweg yeah. would ever do that. Yeah, definitely not. And not even Valdez, because Valdez is manipulative, but not in this way, not, not in this gratuitous way. She really does have a goal and mm -hmm. her goals are not really bad. It's for her family. Mm-hmm. So we already covered this, but the characters that were inspired by Hedda, one of them is Reinweg, obviously. The other one is a little bit unexpected. And, you know, I think most people would not be able to guess who he is. Who is he? It's Ingvar. It's Ingvar because of the nihilism and of the boredom with life and with the ennui, because... Of course, it is manifested different for Ingvar because Ingvar is more apathetic and uh, he doesn't try to create little enterta entertainment for himself like Heda does. But I think that at the core of it, there is the same um, uh, nihilism for them both. And, um, well... Heda sees uh, death as the only escape from boredom and from loss of control. So this is why she commits suicide at the end. So mm -hmm. she is looking for meaning in the modern world and she finds that there is no meaning left. Um, so um, this is sort of what Ingvar does as well. And he always gets himself into very uh, extreme and dangerous situations because he doesn't really care if he lives or dies. Mm -hmm. um, and Ivar, I think, even more so in equilibrium point because he is more bored and he finds less meaning in life. Because at least in the modern, in, in the medieval setting, uh, Ingvar actually does something. He has a higher purpose. He, uh, he wants to uh, um, oppose the forceful conversion of Norway to Christianity and to be a leader. But then in an equilibrium point, he he really sees no meaning in the modern world. And this is exactly how Heda feels herself. And they both find that everything is substandard. They cannot find any satisfaction in anything they do. They both try doing things. I guess 
inverse distractions, I mean, inverse distractions are, uh, you know, sports and things like that, but they both find everything really substandard in the end. So not even the things that they try to like, not even those are good enough. And for Hedda Gabler, even death is substandard <laughs> because she wants Eilat Lovebug to commit suicide. And she, she imagines it that he will shoot himself through the heart and he will be this, this bold man who overcame a futile existence and he took destiny in his own hands and ended his own life so she really romanticizes suicide and then when she asks questions about how he died she finds out that he didn't actually kill herself but the gun went off and because he was drunk and shot him in the stomach so then she 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 finds she um she thinks that this is absolutely terrible so even death is substandard and uh I, she is very disillusioned when this happens so when she kills herself it is in a way to show everybody how it's done and so she does it with um, grace uh, heroically and beautifully like she says she shoots herself in the temple with her father's gun so um she finds ultimate meaning in her own suicide. So this is how far her boredom and her nihilism goes. Of course, yes. Ingvar or Ivar doesn't get that far um, because, you know, Ingvar gets himself into battles because he is, um, well, he has a purpose for that. But I think that deep down he's seeking um, a challenge and he, sort of looks forward to dying because if he dies in battles like Hera says right heroically and and beautifully then that would be meaning that makes sense i think ingvar is someone who tries to define himself through external tasks you know such as mm -hmm. preventing the conversion of norway to christianity but Hedda doesn't even have that so she's a little bit more like ivar because she doesn't have this kind of massive goal she can aim towards, right? Especially since she's a woman in the exactly. late 19th century and she's just ordinary. She's just, you know, married and she's pregnant. But Ingvar is someone from the medieval ages who is, you know, a nobleman and he has so many connections and he's constantly traveling. So that's why his boredom is staved off. Exactly, exactly. And this is why he doesn't. And he, he says that he would not kill himself, but he, he gets himself into dangerous situations, but he says that he would not kill himself. But for Heda, well, she, she saw it as uh, the, the only thing she could do to, mm -hmm. to take life in her own hands because she was losing control little by little. And she hated that. Mm-hmm. Ibsen's female protagonists all have a different way of dealing with having no power in their society. Exactly. So even though we were talking last time that um, this is a, a theme that is very um, frequented by Ibsen, that uh, he, he talks a lot about uh, women feeling trapped, uh, he doesn't repeat himself because his female characters are all unique and uh this theme uh shows different aspects of uh, society and of the human psyche so and definitely Heda is the most unique of all 
and um, uh, she makes so much sense and everything is so brilliantly done or uh, her behavior and her um, uh, words and everything and uh, she is still a very unique character i do not know anyone quite like her in mm -hmm. in fiction before or after yeah definitely so how else did Hedda Gabler influence you in your writings? I think that it was um, Ibsen in general that uh, uh, made me want to portray, um, well, not only psychology more in depth in my writings, but uh, disorders, I think but in a more subtle way. So, of course, I do talk about um, uh, bipolar disorder with Valdez, but um, um, also in, um, uh, I mean, with um, in Equilibrium Point, but then I deal with it in a more subtle way in the uh, Middle Ages, where it's not really referred to as mental illness. So I think that it was... Uh, uh, Ibsen that made me want to explore these themes of uh, of mental illness more in depth because he has a lot of that and at a time when they aren't really named as such because mm -hmm. of course psychology and psychiatry were in their beginning. And also um, I think I noticed, noticed another thing that's similar between you guys' works is that um, Ibsen always you know, says a lot through really small actions, such as, you know, the, the scene where Hedda is trying to get Eiler to drink, right? That says a lot about her and her goals and what she ultimately wants for him. And I think you do that a lot with your works too. You know, a single sentence or an action can really illustrate what a person is thinking and what their intentions are. I'm really, really happy to uh, to hear that you think so because uh, I really love these subtle details and um, I, I what I think and what I'm trying to do is especially to put them in a medieval setting because uh, for some reason a lot of historical writings don't focus on these small details. They often go more grand scale, but I do try to uh, uh, to take these uh, little scenes that out of the context may seem insignificant but then turn them into symbols, you know, like the, like you said, the scene with uh, with the drink, like the scene with the hat and with Aunt Julia in the beginning. So little things like that. So uh, I, I'm really glad that you think that uh, my writings are similar to that of Ibsen's. Definitely, I learned this from him and from other brilliant writers from the past. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I can definitely see the influence. Yes. And I agree. I think most historical writings, they're more like fantasy and sci-fi in a sense, like the more epic scale sci-fi and fantasy, where, you know, the focus is mostly on the plot or the world building. And I guess in the historical sense, you know, historical details, like this historical figure lived in that time and this is what the clothes look like. This was how society was like, societal structures. And that usually tends to be the focus rather than on more mundane things, like what you have explored in your novel, Lucky Wolf. That's true. And I think this is why I am so much influenced by literature from the 19th century, because it was a, a, a time of... Uh, 
um, uh, of, of change when it went from um, this type of writing uh, and uh, the, there was a, a lot of historical writings based on uh, adventures and uh, all, all, the, all the other things that you said, but then it passes on to realism. And uh, so many writings of the time um, show the confluence between these trends. And this is what I, I want to show in my historical writings, this mm -hmm. combination. I think it's a great combination. And I think we should talk more about it in the future because it is such a genre that is not explored, you know, psychological plus historical. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, we should talk about it in more detail. That's mm -hmm. right. I'd love to. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye. Goodbye.